Liz Benicio leads the Topgolf Legal Department as Vice President and Deputy General Counsel. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Austin College and a Juris Doctor degree from SMU Dedman School of Law. Liz started her career at a prestigious firm in Dallas where she specialized in commercial transactions with a particular focus on commercial real estate, development, and finance. Next up, Liz worked for Brinker International for eight years, and in April of 2014, she joined Topgolf just when the company was really starting to grow. She has since built an in-house legal team that always represents the best interests of the company. In our conversation with Liz, we talk about the art of negotiation in a moment when she found herself negotiating with somebody unexpected. Welcome to the show, Liz Benicio. First of all, thank you all so much for having me this morning. Um, it's really great to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. We are so excited about this conversation today, and I don't get a lot of opportunities to talk to lawyers. I assume you went to law school, but I can't imagine that you went from law school straight to Top Golf, did you? <laughs> no, I had many years uh, in a law firm here, two law firms actually here in Dallas. So I went from law school to a firm called Thompson and Knight here in Dallas. Where did you go to law school? SMU. Oh, nice. So I'm a Dallas. I, I'm a Dallas girl. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't born here, but certainly grew up here. And um, went to a small, I went to Austin College in Sherman, which is about an hour north of Dallas. So I've always um, sort of made Dallas and the surrounding areas my home. But um, yeah, so after law school, I went to work for Thompson and Knight here in Dallas. I was there for a couple of years and um, moved to a firm called Lock Lord. It's Lock Lord today. And made partner there. I was there for a number of years. What does it mean to make partner at a law firm? As you develop in your career at a private firm, at a law firm, you generally start as an associate with that firm. As you kind of go through your career and get a little bit more um, senior, you know, partner at a law firm generally means that you have some kind of equity partnership. Um, okay. So it's, it's like a promotion, you know, and most firms, um, at least when I was in private practice, you're eligible for partner around um, six to eight years, I would say. You go through a big interview process. Really what they wanna make sure of is that you have a book of business, you know, you work with clients that are gonna continue to come back to you because they wanna make sure that, you know, you're contributing to the firm's business and have a book of, book of clients that you can work with. What is the likelihood of getting the name changed when you, became part, when you become partner to get your name on that? billboard or oh on the my side goodness. of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that normally, um, that is normally a perk for those who start their own firms. Got it. You know, I mean, I was at pretty big firms, so there was a lot of different people um, who, who were members of the firm and partners in the firm. But really, it's generally the people that start the firm that get their name on the door, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. You become partner. I imagine there's a huge celebration. There is. And then yeah. what happens next? <laughs> For me personally? For you personally. Well, about a year into that, um, Brinker International called. And um, as many of you know, Brinker, you know, a great hospitality restaurant company. They've got Chili's and Maggiano's. And back then, they had a lot of other brands as well. They had Corner Bakery and On the Border. And um, 
you know, had interest in other restaurant companies as well. So they called, wanted me to come talk to them about joining um, their group here in Dallas. And, you know, Norman Brinker was the founder of Brinker. And um, because he has his name on the wall, he does. It's his company <laughs> on the he door, had the name on the door. And growing up in Dallas, you know, I knew all about Norman and the company and thought, you know, why not? Let's let's see what what they might have to uh, to talk about. So you went from a firm to then going in-house. Mm-hmm. Is that the right term or mm-hmm. the right phrase? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's perfect. And for me, I had always loved learning about the businesses of my clients. You know, early on in my legal career, I thought about going back and getting an MBA um, because I was loving, you know, getting to know my clients' businesses. And I didn't end up doing that. I sort of, I talked to a few clients and they said, Liz, don't, don't stop now, keep going. But I knew that, um, going to work for a company like Brinker, I would be able to take a deep dive into all aspects of the business. You know, as a lawyer at a firm, you're juggling, you know, 45 matters for different different people at different companies, but you really don't have the opportunity to get to know the entire picture of that company. But when you're in-house, um, that's, you know, that's what you do. You take a deep dive into all of the various aspects of the company. And that's what I loved. So um, I went to work for Brinker and I stayed there nine years and uh, met a lot of great people along the way. Liz has no issues with commitment. You're like, I have no nine issues with years. Commitment. And then how did you come to Top Golf straight from Brinker? I did. Oh, how did we, did. how did we manage that? I did. Well, William Davenport is the common denominator <laughs> between, uh, between Brinker and, uh, and Topgolf. For me, at least, William and I worked together at Brinker and, um, you know, he called and said, Liz, Topgolf is growing. You know, we'd love for you to come talk to us. And, um, I laugh, you know, there wasn't a legal department at Topgolf back then. There were no lawyers. And, uh, I laugh that it's, probably one of the longest interview periods I've ever had uh, because it wasn't just about me. It was about creating this whole department. And um, so, but it was good. Did you feel excited about creating a whole brand new legal department or were were there nerves or how did you feel about that? Yeah, well, there's always nerves going to a new company that you don't know. But I knew all about Topgolf before I even arrived here because I'm a golfer. I love to golf. So I was golfing at you know, what's now Park Lane, uh, um, before, uh, before I came here, I knew that, um, that there wasn't a legal department and William and I talked a lot about it and it, it was exciting. It was something that I'd never done before. And there's always nerves, you know, if you're about to do something that you've never done before, but it was also very exciting. And I was, I knew I would be passionate about the company and was certainly passionate about what we do. Um, and so, that makes it more fun. You became an entrepreneur within your within your <laughs> expertise, yeah. right? Because you had to create a business within the business. It's a good way to think about it. Yeah, I was definitely getting my arms around what we had done, how we had done it, you know, um, and uh, just kind of started from scratch, which was great. And learning the business. I mean, back then, you know, we were in one room downtown. Um, How many venues did we have when you started at Topgolf? I think we had probably 10 to 12 venues when I started. And um, in that office, in our very first office, you know, nobody, nobody had an actual office. We were all kind of out 
um, in open space. I could look up and see anybody in the company, what they were doing, where they were. And so I had people around me that represented every part of our business. You know, I sat next to Rodney and Helen, who was our risk and safety person. And, and Rodney is our vice president of partnerships. Yes. Um, so so I you're just, hearing him pitch and say, sell. And then on the other side of the desk, there's risk talking through like safety yeah. and that type of thing. And then you're like negotiating contracts and you're hearing everybody's. Exactly. And we're work. sharing, you know, the great thing about an open space is you start collaborating because you overhear each other talking and it's like, what are you, what are you working on? It's so cool. And that was a great, probably the best way that I uh, was able to kind of learn about our business. We're talking about the art of negotiation and thinking through specific moments that have sparked or inspired you or motivated you to make decisions and where did you start honing in on the skill of the art of negotiation and when did you find out that you were good at it you liked doing it or or passionate about that in general it's funny i was thinking about the art of negotiation um, over the last couple of days and negotiation is not just what I've done as a lawyer, as we all know, we all start negotiating from the time we can walk and talk, really. Oh, I was negotiating with my four-year-olds this morning. <laughs> exactly, Sounds exactly. Right. Well, one of my favorite negotiation stories with a child is uh, my wife, Sam, has a nephew and his name is Cannon. So a couple of years ago, Cannon was at our house and we had a house full of people, his parents included. And we said, hey, Cannon, would you mind watching Ace, our dog, in the backyard for an hour? And uh, I said, hey, Cannon, we'll give you a dollar to do that. And he kind of paused for a moment and looked a little quizzical and said, I'll take $3, Liz. Okay. And I thought, yes. wow, what a negotiator. So we landed on two, which I thought was a very successful negotiation for us Absolutely. and for Canon. <laughs> and so that's one of my favorite stories, but it just goes to show we're always negotiating in some way, shape, or form. Um, I happen to have probably done it more than most just because I've been to law school. Um, but, um, you know, it's just one of those skills, just like anything. Um, when you first start out in a negotiation, if you haven't done much of it, you know, you're going to feel a little rusty or unsure. And I have certainly had those moments where I have felt, um, you know, nervous about going into a negotiation with somebody um, or just a little unsure of myself. And I think as, you know, hopefully as we continue talking, we can talk about some of the things that um, can help, um, you know, prepare you for, for negotiating. So with how do you get prepared for a negotiation? One of the things that I try to do is understand who's across the table from me. And one of the things that I think really helps in a negotiation is understanding the other person's perspective and understanding their goals. So going in and sitting down at a table when you just are thinking about yourself and what you want out of it, I think you're probably not going to get as much at the end of the day if you don't understand what they're looking for as well. How do you understand what they're looking for? Well, you can ask them. Aside from being a mind reader, which TJ is excellent at, but for the rest of us, <laughs> mere humans. Exactly. Um, well, more than likely, you've had some conversations with them going into 
that particular meeting. So, you know, if, if it's somebody that I don't know at all and I've never talked to, I'll look them up. You know, you can pretty much find out anything about anybody today and, um, and just understanding, you know, what was their background? Where's their education? How long have they been at the law firm or at the company they're at with? If it's a public company, you know, they're probably going to have different goals than a private company. And really just sort of, um, you know, thinking about those conversations that you've had going into it and what's important to them at the end of the day. Negotiation kind of gets a bad rap sometimes because you think the person with the loudest voice or the hardest hammer and sort of that bully that they're probably going to come away with the most at the end of the day. And I have found almost the exact opposite is true. Okay. You know, I mean, it's the person that listens more than anybody else at the table Um, because it's not about really what I'm saying or what I want it's it's listening to the other person talk about what's important to them and that kind of helps you get to that middle ground right because both parties probably aren't going to walk away with everything that they want on their list you know how do you get to the point where both parties are walking away and feeling like it's successful do you feel like Empathy has a big part of kind of when you're researching someone to understand what they might be coming to the table with if you've never talked to them before. You know, is empathy empathy something that you're exercising there or what is the skill, the soft skill that you're exercising during that part of the negotiation? I think empathy is a great skill to have when you're going into any discussion with someone and you know those listening skills are really important one thing i always try to do you know especially if i'm meeting somebody that i've never met before is find that common ground are you from the same hometown did you grow up in dallas you know how long have you been at your law firm how many kids do you have not that's not a skill that everybody naturally has from my personality type, you know, I'm just a, pre- a people person and I'm curious about people. But for somebody who's more of, you know, that dominant kind of hard charging person, it's something to keep in the back of your mind that sort of kind of sets the stage. Um, you don't dive right into it, but you just get to know the person on the other side of the table first. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. Connecting the dots. I mean, we preach this at the venue level, I'm sure at the home office as well. And you're really focusing on what are our common grounds and what we can talk about. So Liz, I heard in the past you had a nickname of the Velvet Hammer, <laughs> and you said that sometimes the reputation of negotiation is the person that hits the hammer the hardest is the person that wins, but your approach is obviously very different, and you're a people-first negotiator. How do you think that that can set a negotiation off in the right direction for you? Well, I definitely like everyone, you know, come to the table with our goals in mind and my personal goals in mind for the discussion. Um, But I do think that, um, you know, starting with those soft skills really helps kind of develop that trust with whoever you're working with at the table. And then you just play a game of ping pong back and forth until both parties walk away feeling like they got everything they wanted. Yeah. And that's kind of the, I mean, that's kind of the game, right? Is how do you make them walk away from the table thinking, okay, this is a good deal, you know? Um, And it's really just, it's really just listening, understanding their perspective and what they want and finding those places where we feel like we can give them something, but we're not giving them everything. You did it. Now we have. Now you have it. Which is great. So you, before, it sounds like negotiation 
the way that you approach it, it starts well before you ever get into that interaction with preparation and trying to understand what the other person might need or want out of the conversation or the contract. What else do you need to do before you come to the meeting? You know, I think it's important um, just to understand what we want as well. You know, it's, it's almost equally as important to know what's important to us and what our goals are for the meeting before you ever walk in the door. And where are some of those, what, what are some of those things that we can sort of give them or get from them along the way? You always kind of want to know your, your best position, you know, what we would be willing to walk away from, and then really where we would ideally end up. So would you mental model out like a good, better, good, better, best scenario? Like I'm, I'm good with this. This would be better. And this is best case. Yeah. I think that's a good way to go about it. And then on the opposite, like I'm willing, here are the places where I'm willing to give. I don't, what is there a term for that? Like the cushion, like like the area. Like a concession. Yeah. The buffer, the buffer, the, the concessions, you know, that are on the table. And it's interesting. I mean, as a, as a young lawyer, as a, you know, somebody who really had never done this before. I think um, what what I tended to do when I was very young and, and just starting out in the profession is it's easy to say no. You know, if somebody asks you something and you don't understand it or you don't know how to answer, a lot of times your first instinct is just to say, no, we can't do it. I think that's the, like, when I think about what a room full of lawyers looks like and sounds like, I hear a lot of no's in my imagination. Right. So it's so interesting that you're saying that's a baby lawyer mindset. Maybe someone that's more like experienced realizes. You're always gonna have those lines in the sand. You know, you're always gonna have those areas that are for us, for Topgolf, you know, we need this. But I would say on a broader scale, you, how do we get to the yes? You know, how do you get to the yes in whatever issue you're talking about? Because you never want, you know, a lawyer to kill a deal. Right. I mean, that's the worst lawyer I can think of is somebody <laughs> who brings the deal negotiations to a halt because they're just saying no. And I've been in rooms with people like that, you know. How do you overcome a person, a, a, maybe a lawyer on the other side of the table who is a no person? It's difficult. You know, it's difficult. I think continuing to keep them at the table is important, whether it's, you know, shifting to another issue that is a little bit more um, even keel, not so um, uh, I don't charged. Know. Yeah, not so charged. Um, you know, shifting issues, kind of talking about something else. Um, you know, you've just got to find those ways to keep them at the table because walking away um, because there's too many no's in the conversation is not the best way to do it. And I've, I actually ended a conversation with somebody that we had worked with before. And, um, you know, I don't know if, if he had had about 10 Red Bulls before he got on the phone, but it was one of the most, I mean, that's probably in 20 years of practicing law. It's the first conversation I've terminated because I felt like the person on the other end, you know, wasn't interested in a conversation, you know, was just being, 
extremely aggressive in their position. And again, this is somebody that we were, we're partners with, you know, and I just said, you know, today, um, I think, I don't think we have anything else to talk about today. So let's pick this back up tomorrow or the next day and go from there. And um, so that was, um, that was, and, and I don't even know that we were necessarily negotiating at that point, but it was a moment when the, the no's were just more than, you know, than I could overcome at that time. Right. And it was just time to sort of step back and regroup and then come back to the table. So I think part of negotiation is knowing when it's not effective or it's not like producing any sort of fruit. Right. I think in our next conversation, I kind of started off by saying, look, you know, we have a proven history. You know, we're, we consider you all par our partner and we want to continue to find ways to work well together and to get to that point that, you know, we both want to want to end up at. And the second conversation was great. And I think we did what we accomplished. It was just another day and another time. And sometimes that happens. So right? you, you said earlier, it's, uh, you know, you have to know what your line in the sand is. Like what, when you have no more wiggle room. So how soon in the conversation from a, from a strategy perspective, are you willing to lay your cards on the table and say, this is, this is absolutely my, my like this is as far as I can possibly bend yeah is there is there a time in which or a some way that you gauge when it's appropriate to just I'm the kind of person that would much rather just walk in and say here's everything I can do for you I can't do an ounce more right. I'm not a car salesperson there's no wiggle room this is just what it is yeah it's a great question Tiffany but I guess it's like but then someone can say well then I have to leave it yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, that's really what you have to kind of weigh and and um, feel your way through that conversation. Personally, I don't lead with our lines in the sand. You know, I'm more tempted to start with the low-hanging fruit. You know, these are the four issues where I think we're pretty much on the same page. Let's start with those, you know, because then everybody considers those a win. Yeah, put some points on the board. Yeah, put some points on the board. Get through those issues that, you know, you think are pretty easy to kind of reach a resolution on. I always start with those. Um, and then as the, as the conversation, you know, gets a little bit further down the road and those issues start narrowing, then you just kind of have to start picking and choosing. And, and I, and honestly, I think if you're, if you're in one of those situations where you have a line in the sand, you know, that, that you're, you're talking about, it's important to really, really dig in and understand the other party's perspective. That's okay. when I really start listening a little harder, doing my best to ask more questions so that I'm understanding where they're coming from because I know what's at stake, you know. And um, a lot of times, you know, going into the call like that, if we know that that's going to be one of the last issues, um, you know, I will have talked to, you know, William or another leader on our team to understand what our flexibility, if any, is. But those are generally the last issues on the table. And, um, you know, you just sometimes you do have to just say, look, guys, this is all we can do. But we can, you know, we've given you these concessions and we believe this is a fair deal for both of us. Sometimes when I am considering going into negotiation or trying to hype myself up, I get a little bit nervous that if it's something that is personal to me, that I'm going to become emotional. Mm -hmm. And that scares me because I am not comfortable crying 
and certainly not in public. Right. And being worried about becoming emotional almost makes it certain that I will become emotional. So have you ever experienced something where in a, in a conversation negotiation that you were really, really passionate about? Like, how do you balance the emotion and the passion with the logic and like the job at hand or the ob- ob- objective at hand? You know, I always sort of for myself, I fall back on the facts and the data, you know, and the deal points. I mean, I, I always try to kind of go back to, okay, this is what, this is the fact behind what we're asking for and sort of that data. And that kind of pulls me into my, the logic side of my brain. Right. Shifts your brain. You know, and away from the overly emotional side of my brain. So that's kind of how I do it. I kind of, how do I get to the point where I'm on the logic side of my brain and not on the creative and emotional side of my brain? Is there a moment in time where you remember that I'm either so nervous walking into this negotiation and have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to fake it as best as I can? Or a moment when you said, okay, I've got this and this is what I'm telling myself that I'm going to walk into this and hype myself up. You know, I think it's probably a question that all women ask ourselves, you know, or tell what we say to ourselves, which is, I have a right to be here. You know, um, I belong at this table and um, and I'm able to do this. You know, I'm able to do this job because I'm, I've prepared for it. Um, I've got experience doing it and I've planned for it. And that's the most you can do. It's funny, I just learned recently about a woman who um, she advocates the poses. Do you all know oh, yeah. what I'm talking oh, yes. about? The power pose. The so, power pose. Um, so Liz just took her hands and put them on her hips, which I reminds me of like the way the cheerleader would stand. Yes. And or a superhero, and you like superhero puff out pose. your yeah, you puff out your chest. Yeah. So I just you learned make yourself about her, big. and I did not know about the power pose early in my career. If I had known about it, I would have done it. And what a lot of people do is they they kind of advocate. They go into a restroom or a private room before a big negotiation or a big meeting, and they take the power pose for like. I don't know how many seconds she advocates. It's like 60 seconds. Um, and you just stand there looking at yourself in the mirror in this very um, confident um, pose, and it just gets you ready to walk into any room and do anything you want to do. Um, so I love that, and I wish I would have known about it when I was a lot younger in my career because I would have used it for sure. So I couple that with... You know, when you're having the butterflies in your tummy mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm so nervous. And if you keep ruminating and thinking how nervous you are, yeah. it's just going to make you more nervous. Right. So I will couple the power pose with, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. And I just repeat that. I'm not nervous, I'm excited. And always, half of a second, I feel confident, I'm ready. I'm about to, you know, we're on a big company meeting and it's my turn to talk and I know because of the agenda that it's almost my turn. And no matter how many times I have done it or how comfortable it seems I am, half of a second before my, t- my stomach drops. Yeah. And I have to remind myself again, I am not nervous, I am excited. Yeah. And then it just, it simmers down enough 
for me to then launch into it. Yeah. But I just have to constantly remind myself of that. I still get butterflies, you know, even today, especially if, if I'm going into conversations about topics that are new to me, you know, I mean, I'm constantly learning even in my job at Topgolf, um, about things or, you know, new laws or new topics that I, that I'm not an expert on, you know, we're, it's funny as women, I think we feel like we should be experts on mm-hmm. every topic. And if it were up to us, we would, we would be an expert on every topic. And I think we spend a lot of time, probably more time sometimes than the men at the table preparing for those meetings, you know, because you want to come across confident and that you know what you're talking about. So, um, but I still get butterflies too. And I love the fact that you're using excitement to kind of pull you into another part of um, your brain, uh, because that's a great word. I mean, I think, you know, people can tell when you're excited about something and it kind of goes back to that passion. Okay, so Liz, what is one piece of advice that you would give our listeners of this podcast when it comes to the art of negotiation in general? I would say if I could leave everyone on the podcast with one thought, it's just, remain curious, you know, exercise that curiosity that we all have. And I think we forget about it kind of in the day to day. Um, It's something that that um, the CEO of Brinker talked about a lot was, you know, how important it is to be curious about people, about places, about your company, about your life, you know, about your career path, um, because that's really going to drive you to go that extra mile and get that piece of information that you might not have had going into a negotiation or any other meeting um, with somebody is just to be open and curious about the people that we're working with. Um, and again, in my mind, that helps to build trust at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. I totally agree. I think that's what this podcast is all about, right? Mm-hmm. We're very interested and curious about the women that impact our business and learning about that impact and 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 about you as a person because you're bringing both right all of your knowledge that you learned in law school and also you as a person you're bringing both of those to the business every day right well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys thank you so much for inviting me i loved it thank you so much for being here we really appreciate it a pleasure Life is full of moments of negotiation, both big and small. In the beginning of a negotiation, you might be nervous and unsure, but you can prepare by understanding the other side's perspectives and goals. It's not always the person with the hardest hammer that is the most successful, but the person that listens the most. Finding a common ground is a great place to start. And if you find yourself in a space where the no's are just too difficult to overcome, A useful strategy that Liz shares is stopping the conversation and restarting at another time. Liz also mentions taking on a power pose before heading into negotiation. You know, the one that was made famous in 2012 during Amy Cuddy's TED Talk? Yeah, that one. You've got to check it out. So, kickstart any negotiation by listening, understanding, finding that common ground. But before you even walk in a room, remember to strike that power pose and know You've got this.